Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Arcanex Sessions, episode 126. This week, we're sharing my conversation with Sharon Johnston and Mark Lee, the founders of LA-based firm Johnston Mark Lee. The conversation took place in front of a live audience during this summer's LA Design Festival in downtown Los Angeles. We discussed the origin of their practice, their relationship to Los Angeles, the eclectic group of collaborators they have worked with over the years, and their unique approach to telling the story of their work in their recently published monograph. Thanks everybody for coming out. I'm Paul. Um, so when, when the festival first approached me to do this interview, my first task was to find a really, a really great, important practice in Los Angeles. So I particularly looked for a prominent, exciting practice that is not only producing amazing work, but is really pushing the architectural discourse in an in a exciting direction. As soon as I started thinking about LA architects, my mind started racing to all the regulars that we're all familiar with in LA. And then after a little while, I realized that one of my favorite architecture firms in the world is actually in LA. And I often, I often have a hard time clumping them together with the rest of the LA architecture scene um, for reasons that I'm hoping that we can discover as we talk about your work. The interesting thing is that while many of the architects in LA that are identified as being part of the LA architecture school are actually transplants to LA, either from different parts of the country or different parts of the world, Johnston Mark Lee, um, Sharon Johnston and Mark Lee, are natives to Los Angeles. Uh, Sharon, you uh, grew up in Malibu, and Mark, you moved from Hong Kong to L.A. when you were a teenager, I, I understand. That makes him a native. Yes, yes, so it, they, they uh, represent the rare native uh, Angelinos. So in today's conversation, I hope we can learn about Sharon and Mark from both a personal and professional point, and so that we can better understand what makes their stunning architecture work so international, yet so uniquely Los Angeles. So Sharon, as I mentioned, I'd like to start with you. Uh, you grew up in Malibu. I'm going way back. That's the way I usually like to do. What was it like growing up in Malibu? That's kind of a, a, uh, a little bit off the beaten track part of Los Angeles. Not a lot of significant architecture coming out of Malibu. So uh, I'm interested in, in what your childhood was like in Malibu and what initially drew you towards architecture. Yeah, sure. I think um, for sure all of my parents' friends thought they were crazy when um, they moved to Malibu. They thought we were just going to disappear off the face of the earth. But I think, you know, when I, I was, I grew up on the beach. I was an athlete. I was I played volleyball. So that whole beach culture was really part of my life in, in high school and college. But when I reflect on that time now as an architect, I think what is most significant is just sort of the importance of the ecology of Southern California to how I lived and and really sort of how LA was embodied in my life and my sort of sensibility about making space once I started, you know, leaving the West Coast, going to the East Coast for graduate school. And I think even today, I, I think it kind of um, part of what keeps us in LA is just this incredible landscape of the city, the diversity of kinds of ecologies in the city. And you know, just a kind of sense of openness. It's a big city. And I think that kind of scale and is something that's important to us and why we want to stay here. That we, It's been a place to work, but it hasn't necessarily been a place that we've been a center of all of our work. So it's a kind of, mm -hmm. it's a kind of not necessarily a place of escape, but I think that sort of wide openness that was, I think, really imparted to me living on the edge of the city on the coast is something that we still really appreciate. So Mark, what brought you to Los Angeles from Hong Kong? 
I came to uh, the two years of high school in Claremont, and uh, it was a boarding school. So it was one of the boarding schools where I have to stay in the dorm. I get to leave once a month. And every month I come out to L.A., I loved L.A. It's like uh, getting out of jail. Yeah. What part was, of L.A. was that? The part where I hung out was like West, Westwood. Westwood was where, where it was happening back then. You know, the theaters That was a long there. time ago. Yeah. No. But uh, it came in 1983, so it was one year before the Olympics. And uh, they're building Tom Bradley Terminal. You know, L.A. was happening. Um, they just finished the Aerospace Museum. You know, it was a really exciting part when L.A. was, was changing. You know, downtown, the, the construction in downtown. I remember before I came to L.A. for high, two years of high school, the movie that came out then was Fast Times at Richmond High. Uh, so I was really uh, disappointed about high school life when I actually came here. <laughs> But also, I think, uh, as I remember from that two movies, uh, uh, from that movie, there were two shopping malls that were featured. Uh, I think the exterior of Santa Monica Place by Frank Gehry was used as the exterior shot of the mall where all the life happened. And then the interior was um, shot at Sherman Oaks Galleria. So two, of, two malls that are relatively new. You know, but I think for me, that kind of encapsulated Los Angeles life in the early 80s. So mall architecture was among your first architectural Very inspirations. Much so, yeah, yeah. It was, there was no urban life. It was that that or Westwood, you know, a Westwood village. Yeah. And smaller enclaves like Larchmont, it didn't happen yet. There was no Third Street Promenade. Third Street Promenade was uh, Main Street Santa Monica was a 60s development, kind of a failed walking street development. Places like Larchmont Village had some character, but not much activities, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was really like happening in the malls. Mm. And then you went to study, you got your undergraduate degree at USC. Mm -hmm. Was that in architecture? In architecture, yes. What made you choose USC? I think I chose LA first. Okay. I chose LA, and then uh, at that time it's either USC or Cal Poly Pomona. Mm -hmm. SciArc was relatively new at that time. It was still kind of a hippie school. You know, mm -hmm. it's like uh, at that time there were students who went to SciArc that know they wanted to go to SciArc, and then there were some students that were not quite sure. So there was a big diversity amongst the quality of students. Actually, at least that was my impression then. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I started USC when I was uh, 18 or 19. And Sharon, you went up to Stanford. What was, what was it at Stanford that drew you there? Well, I guess first and foremost, it was athletics. I played volleyball for Stanford, oh, okay. so, so that did, was the main thing. Did you get a thing. scholarship? I did, yeah. Oh. Um, but during that time, I started discovering architecture and found myself on the other side of the bay quite a lot. Um, I took classes at Cal. And so, but I studied history, so I, I think I went to Europe really for the first time and decided that I didn't necessarily want to be a historian because I really discovered architecture mm -hmm. traveling in Italy. And, and so that was the beginning of my path towards architecture. It really dates us because uh, you don't, at that time, you don't have to be six foot three to play volleyball for Stanford. <laughs> and they were national champs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I did not realize that. That's very, very cool. And so then you both ended up moving off to Cambridge to get your graduate degree in architecture from Harvard's GSD program. Mm -hmm. And I assume that you met there. You didn't know each other prior to right. meeting there. What was it about Harvard that, that drew you to that school? besides its reputation? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I was, hadn't had that much experience in architecture yet. I was an MRC one. And I feel like my, when I decided to go to architecture school, it was still pretty open. I mean, given my background in history, I wasn't sure if, if I was going to practice or maybe get a PhD. And Harvard felt like a place where it would be sort of the most, the kind of biggest crossroads of 
of thinkers globally and I felt like that was the most appropriate sort of context to, to find a more specific path into the discipline. I mean, I was there for MARC too, so as a post-professional degree, because I had a five-year Bachelor of Architecture degree already. So I was, I was only there for a year and a half. Mm -hmm. But it was the time uh, after Bernard Chumi had been the Dean of Columbia for three or four years. You know, so it was an interesting model at Columbia because somehow, for me, I think Bernard Chumi brought kind of institutionalized the avant-garde type of teaching that he was from AA in, in London mm -hmm. to Columbia. So in, in many ways, not unlike what Walter Gropius did in the 40s when he somehow brought Bauhaus to Harvard. You know, but also for me, that was at the tail end, it felt like the tail end of something, you know, whereas I thought Harvard was much more diverse. Mm -hmm. You know, the visitors, they were the avant-garde practitioners, but also they have the corporate architects they were teaching. It's a larger school. So I think that was one of the reasons that attracted me to Harvard. And what attracted you two together? I'm, uh, <laughs> apologies for getting uh, personal. I mean, I you, you are married, you are married, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. first, you first uh, met yeah. there from, uh, was it kind of more of a professional or personal connection at first? We were, we met at, uh, we were students at Herzl Damron's studio. Mm -hmm. And then we met through common friends, but we were not a couple at Harvard. We're friends. We it was, uh, but I think we bonded because we. Uh, Sharon was from LA, and I lived in LA for ten years before I went there. So I think there's some, maybe we both dislike Boston. There, <laughs> I think the year, first year I went there was the year when they had the uh, record snowfall in 1993. Oh, yeah. So I never lived in a place where I didn't know what to do with the snow. You know, dreaming of palm trees every night. I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, I think we, we basically wanted because we had we share some commonalities mm. in this kind of West Coast mentality. How influential was your time in school? Looking back now, after mm -hmm. uh, developing a successful practice, well, I, I think you know, speaking for myself, I, I think it was an important time. You know, I I took very different studios, took very different classes. I took a studio with Herzog Damron, but I also took a studio with Peter Eisenman. Uh, both of us took a lot of art history classes outside of the design school. You know, there were a lot of great people there. Yves Ambois was teaching there. A lot of visitors like Michael Fried, David Hickey. And we took a lot of classes in art history. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I think at the GSD at that time was also a very strong European presence. Uh, Wilfred Wang was there, you know, who was hired under Rafael Moneo. So there were a lot of Swiss that were teaching there, a lot of Spanish that were teaching there. So it really felt like the crossroads of many different cultures. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'd had less professional experience before, or educational experience, um, maybe than Mark, but I think the kind of diversity of, of ideas, this engagement with, with art history and contemporary art that we kind of both found at Harvard, I think in a way it sort of gave us the confidence as we built our practice to be, to kind of shape the boundaries of our particular engagement with the discipline of architecture and the way we look at disciplines outside of our own work as architects uh, and be confident about that. I mean, I think Harvard trains a lot of sort of people that go on to the corporate world and, you know, that, that it's very, trains very confident architects. But I think it also, um, I mean, I got very involved in sort of studio art making practice as well. And I, I think it, despite the fact that our career is very much about building buildings, I think we're also really engaged in kind of parallel creative practices. And for me, that I think I was first exposed to that possibility while I was in the, the larger community of Harvard and the GSD. So you started Johnston Markley in 1998. Were you both working for other firms for a few years before doing that? You know, what 
made you decide to to leave your day jobs and, and start your own practice? Well, I was in Switzerland. You know, I was in Switzerland for three years or so. I was working and teaching at first, and at the last year or two was mainly teaching. And when I was hired to go there, I was only planning to be there for a year and a half, but things were quite exciting there, so I decided to stay for almost two more years. And uh, after three years, it's not funny anymore if you don't speak German, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it came to the point for me, at least, I, I should either leave or stay for 10 more years. You know, it's not one of those decisions where you stay for another year or another year. Um, you had, one had to make a commitment. And at that time, I think uh, the economy was doing well in LA. We had some, a few small projects to start. So we made a decision to, I moved back to LA. We started Johnson Markley. We, uh, Sharon started teaching at SciArc. I started teaching at UCLA. Uh, we got married, everything came together, yeah. So if it wasn't for the economy, you could have stayed in yeah, I could be. I could speak very fluent German then. <laughs> and especially because when we graduated yeah. from the GSD in 1996, it was sort of a terrible time in LA, which is partly what led Mark to go to Europe in the first place. Mm-hmm. And what was it like in '98 when you started? I mean, I think it was better. I think we we our first projects for a couple of years. None none of those projects were actually in LA. We first started doing very small projects in Marfa, Texas. We were working for an art foundation there, renovating some houses. Like a lot of LA-based architects, we were working on residential projects. But I think, you know, the seeds were sown for the kinds of works we're doing now, largely through our work in Marfa. We met a lot of artist friends, folks that are now clients of ours or collaborators, people that have gone on to, you know, run museums. So I think... For us, the, the, our engagement with the arts has been both sort of a personal part of our personal life, but it's also been a long-term, I mean, we've sort of shaped a community that eventually became our client base, or part of, you know, an extended part of our client network. And I, I think that's, um, that, you know, like I was saying about the GSD, I think that was something that in a way came out of that, sort of the confidence and the exposure to that, to that world. And then eventually we started doing work in Los Angeles. We remember there's an interview um, of Frank Gehry when, some, when the interviewer asked him, like, how do you feel like when you, started, when you started your career, you're working with all these bohemian artists with very tight budgets, and now you're working on all these uh, multi-million dollar projects. And, and Frank Gehry's answer was that, you know, my, my clients are the same. They all became very successful. I didn't change, you know. And uh, it was like right before the Kellogg Resonate came out. And when the Kellogg Resonate came out, I thought the most interesting thing for me is to look at the, the, the list of the completed works and you see the connections of who he worked on for like in the 70s or the 60s. And then 20 years later, they built something for them. Like there would be a little stair for Frederick Wiseman in the 70s. And then 20 years, five years later, there would be a Frederick Wiseman Museum in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Or he would have done a canopy for Norton Simon, and then later on, he renovated the Norton Simon Museum. It was kind of interesting connection. So when I think back to our beginnings, when we started working in Marfa, a lot of the relationships that we have developed, of friendships with artists, with, at that time, young curators, Oh, we, I mean, we, we, we continue to work with them, work, uh, collaborate on exhibitions, or sometimes we invite them on, on our projects. And eventually, some of them became chief curators, some of them became museum directors, and so there are people that we have grown along 
with, you know. So I think when I think back to those early years that we were not that conscious about it, but then those were important uh, years for us. It seems like this uh, tribe that you developed early on in your practice has become, and the collaboration that you do with, with these other individuals um, has developed into a real core of your, of your practice. Is that, is that true? One of the really interesting ways that this was recently expressed about six years ago in a book that you published on, on your work called A House is a House is a House is a House is a House. <laughs> I got that right? Five houses. Um, it's a very unique way of looking at um, the body of, of an architecture practice's work by, from what I understand, I haven't spent a lot of time with the book, but it's a, um, you, you collaborated with your, your, uh, your collaborators, you, you had people interpret your work from outside of the architecture industry. Perhaps the work was actually even maybe curated by, by others or by, by uh, Reto, the editor. Um, could you talk a little bit about that book and, and what, how you decided to take that approach? Yeah, maybe just a few initial thoughts. I, we were at a point in our career, maybe practicing 12, 13 years, and we were getting approached by editors in sort of far-reaching places who pump out you know, monographs of architects. And, we felt like that was perhaps too early in our career to do something that seemed more encapsulating, sort of overly packaging an early body of our work. So we wanted to think about another model, which was could be more projective for us, that we would really help us you know, refine our ideas and be a learning process in making the book. And Reto, um, Reto Geiser, who's a professor at Rice, was a student of Mark's at the ETH, and had we've worked with him in a number of different ways and so he I mean, he was you know really a partner in, in conceiving of the book and of course designing it and so the idea was to structure it around five conversations with people that are part of our practice but you know are also um, people we admire or somehow have been important to our career curators some people in fashion art historians and to use more of a dialogue of, of a conversation for the structure and then we invited uh, five artists to create portraits of our work and I think that you know you, you use the word collaboration a lot of people talk about that but I think for us I mean architects collaborate all the time it's the nature of our work but we do think about especially our work with artists it wasn't a commission in the way that you would hire maybe an architectural photographer and script out what views and like sort of selling the work or, or, or seeing the work through our eyes but it was really an invitation for these artists who primarily use photography as their medium to explore our projects and, and reflect back to us, you know, their interests in our work that, you know, that might help us discover something new. You know, I think it was a pretty complex book to put together, but it, it and it isn't a kind of tightly synthesized book. It's a series of chapters and layers um, that, that come together in a way in more of a sort of archive-like format than a tightly packaged set of chapters. But I think for us, it it captured where we were at a moment in time. And I think, you know, we're now working on um, a more monographic type publication with El Croquis that will come out this year. And it, you know, I think it's felt like the right thing to do to, to work on uh, House as a House as a starting point and then think of a more, work on a more traditional uh, monograph with the completion of some of our larger institutional projects that we're working on now. 
So the, your first project was, um, so rather than it being a, a series of commissions mm -hmm. among people that you work with, it was an opportunity for them to explore their own personal art by using your work as a subject. Right. Is that type of collaboration, speaking like just from a business, the uh, business of architecture perspective, does it feel like a natural um, way to work for you guys? Or are there ever any difficulties having to, I mean, is there money exchanged when, when you work with these types of collaborations? You know, from a business standpoint, it's not good. <laughs> Every, when, the, when the publisher came to us, he, they wanted a traditional monograph. And as Sharon said, we didn't really want to, uh, at that time of our, in our lives, we didn't really feel like having a, a, a mausoleum that, that puts all the projects we've done in the past in, in one book. So we, we thought of using the book as a platform to think about the future. So uh, to do that, I think we also have to relinquish a lot of control. I mean, because we want others to give us the right feedback, either through the work or through the conversations and such. So for the, art, for the artist projects, all we ask is to use one of our projects as one of their subject matters. So it doesn't have to be the center of focus. So unlike architectural photography, it's not like about the building. So there's some artists like Livia Corona who are interested in issues of aging and gerontology created her own portfolio of these images, of this narrative that our house basically becomes a backdrop of it. Sometimes it's in the background, sometimes it's just a fragment. Uh, so it's not really the documentation of that project. Uh, or Veronica Kendolfer begins to use these blurry images of our building in relationship to this uh, collection of um, uh, succulents or cacti images that she had. So she was explain, uh, exploring more this type of formal relationship between the hot edges of the buildings and plants. So for us, like, these are things that we didn't use or didn't think about, but then it has an afterlife. And for us, it's very architectural in that sense that sometimes we provide the building and the space and we can't really control or anticipate the uses or the inhabitation of that space. So. In, in many ways, I think the collaboration also exists that way. I'm curious about how you have nurtured your relationships with collaborators and, and what makes a good collaborator. I'm sure it's different for everybody. You know, I, I assume it's like at any relationship, you need to get along and, <laughs> and be on the same page on, in, in, in some ways. But maybe can you talk maybe about one of your collaborators and how that, that relationship uh, has evolved over time? I think of Walid Beshti. You know, Walid Beshti is a conceptual artist. You know, we've collaborated for quite a, on quite a few things. The book is one of the things that we collaborated on. And we also collaborated on uh, an exhibition at the Italian Cultural Institute ten, eight, ten years ago. And, and Walid is uh, he's not easy to collaborate with. You know, he's very demanding. You know, he demands a certain uh, conceptual uh, precision. You know, so for him, the backstory is very important you know, before the work came about. So to reconstruct that, to construct that narrative before any of the, uh, the tools or the mechanisms or how the collaboration came about was, has to be solid before we proceed. So there's a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth before that happens, you know. Socially, uh, on a human level, we're very, we're, we're good friends too. But once we start working together, you know, it's a bit, uh, it's, it's, it's a dif different mindset. As opposed to someone like Jack Pearson, you know, it was very easy, it was a very easy flow, a lot of things were improvised. I was thinking yeah. of maybe another example, which is our work with Luisa Lambri, the Italian photographer, and Luisa 
is a friend that we've sort of seen different parts of the world together with, and we really admire her work. And she was also involved in the early stages of the Drawing Institute that we're doing for the Manil. And so I think for that experience, Louisa, um, for those of you guys that know her work, I mean, she tends to focus on very small-scale details on interior spaces. She's very sensitive to light. She works in series, so kind of subtle shifts and the kind of surface of a... Of a of a wall or the change of light through a, through a window. And so she came in on a number of occasions and worked with us um, as we were developing the interior material palette for the Drawing Institute. And so her, you know, thinking about light, thinking about an artist having her work in a space, I think was a very different um, kind of set of, of sensitivities that she brought to the project that was, I think, incredibly meaningful for us. So we, I, I think that we love this, you know, it's a kind of back and forth. We're not trying to be artists. We're not, we don't, we're not engineers. We don't want to be, we don't think of our work in a sort of cross-disciplinary way, but we really appreciate the precision of thinking in one discipline and how it can inform our work within our own discipline. Are there any people out there, living or dead, that you wish you could <laughs> collaborate with? That's a fun a lot of dead people. <laughs> a lot of dead people. <laughs> that's, that's a safe answer. <laughs> So, I mean, going back to L.A. and my earlier comments about... I, I'm not the first one to, to recognize that Johnston Markley is not an easy fit into the L.A. school of architecture, what most people think of. You have both spent a lot of time living and working and teaching and lecturing all over the world at different architecture schools. And you come from L.A. and you... You keep your practice in L.A. What is L.A. architecture to you? I think for us, we see ourselves as very L.A. architects. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think maybe the rest of the world has a certain more narrow perception of what L.A. architecture mm-hmm. is, and which is an important part of L.A. architecture, but we thought that's only one part of it. You mm-hmm. know? And, and I, I feel like when we talked about the artist collaboration, I think one thing about art that interests us is that we have no... We are not participants in the art world, you know. Uh, so we have no vested interest in its importance. So we, we don't have to, we can look through the politics and just see what what is as a as a bystander. Whereas in the architectural world, sometimes you are entrenched in relationships and politics and such. And, and uh, so when we look at the art world, we see maybe reflected through the art world at least there are two different directions of the city of LA. One is very expressionistic, very spectacular, deal with the openness of the, of the weather and the climate and the, and the cultural freedom. And then there's another side of LA that is very banal, that is very uh, ambivalent. And I think there's, there are two types of architecture too. And then we see artists like early Ed Ruscha or Bruce Nauman that embrace that type of banalness, you know. And, and I think for us, we also love this kind of uh, completely uh, banal aspect of LA that we mm. find very Beguiling. And for mm-hmm. us, it's very indigenous Los Angeles, too. So maybe yeah. uh, a lot of buildings that we see are not necessarily uh, authored building or has a very strong architecture signature. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they just came into being in a quite uh, modest way. And, and, and maybe we as- appreciate a lot of these buildings and somehow our, our, our buildings also aspire to have that type of quality. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even where we are right now mm-hmm. in a old industrial part of a long 
abandoned part of downtown. I, I think most of the world could not even imagine mm -hmm. that this is LA, but you know, we're starting to really mm -hmm. embrace this part of LA that's yeah. been long forgotten. Mm -hmm. So I think LA is complicated. Yeah. And um, you know, perhaps the LA school of architects that have kind of been stereotyped over years, mm -hmm. maybe that's just a reflection of how people perceive the city. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. Last year, you guys were the um, artistic directors mm -hmm. for the Chicago Architecture Biennial, which mm -hmm. was a, a very a very prestigious appointment mm -hmm. for a large architecture event that is unique to the United States. Mm -hmm. Its architecture biennials are very common around the world. Venice is, is going on right now. They're all over Europe and Asia, but they've just kind of entered the, uh, the American landscape. Can you talk a little bit about your experience in, in uh, developing the theme, which was Make New History, and, and what it was like to work with the city of Chicago in developing this, this event? Yeah, I think uh, it was definitely a kind of bigger undertaking than we realized when we said yes to, um, to that opportunity, but it was, it was a really tremendous experience for us reflecting back. And I think for us, especially because Chicago is such a nascent program, one of the things that we, was sort of a beginning framework that we built for ourselves as we were shaping the theme of Make New History was to, was to look carefully at the first biennial. We felt like that was really a sort of overview, almost a survey of, um, it was less of a kind of strong curatorial position, but more sort of understanding the state of, of architecture through this kind of wide, wide look. And so I think this uh, idea of making history came out of a certain kind of body of work that we saw as maybe a subset of ideas that were in the first biennial. And I think for Mark and I, we, we thought about engaging in that program as not just our biennial marking a kind of significant moment in time, but trying to really think about maybe the first decade or so of the Chicago program as kind of reflecting an, an era of... of of architecture, and, and so continuity was something we were interested in, in terms of being able to draw out things from the first show, and I think, you know, maybe this reflects a little bit on um, some of the things we've been talking about regarding Los Angeles, that we see there's a generation of architects practicing around the world that that are thinking about the fabric of cities, not so much the icons of um, maybe decades past, but really understanding their work and even big civic work is really um, have its mission to engage the fabric of cities, the history of cities as a way to think about the future. And so continuity as a way to project forward is something that we see as a really strong interest um, of practitioners and historians, um, people that are thinking about the future of cities. So I think that came out of that. And also, you know, the city of Chicago, the history of architecture in that city is significant and probably stands out in American cities um, in that way as being both relevant to the education of architects around the world, but also really a, a, a draw for tourism. And I think part of the mission of that biennial and probably any important biennial is, is to really understand um, and create a platform for a very diverse audience to engage in architecture. And I think the city has been really um, happy with the success of the programs. I mean, there's over 500,000 people have come to this biennial. It's a significant, you know, equal or more than, than Venice. It happens in half the amount of time. And so I think it's, um, I think the city of Chicago as time has passed, the second program has finished, they're working towards the third, we're starting to see the impact on 
the discussion about architect- contemporary architecture in that city. You know, I think it's gone through a couple of decades of perhaps not some of the greatest new buildings being built by developers. And I think the mayor is trying to understand how this focus on design and architecture and, and a global discourse in Chicago can kind of raise the stakes for the future thinking about Chicago, perhaps, you know, to the level of some of the great historical works that have defined that city. You know, when we were first selected as the artistic directors, we received a lot of advices from our friends and colleagues, and because we've never curated anything, definitely nothing at this scale. So uh, two of the pieces of advice that stuck, that stood out was, one was that you'll make a lot more enemies than you'll make friends. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of advice from a, from a seasoned curator is that, at the opening day, there'll be a hundred architects who came up to you and they'll say, this is great, everything looks great, except my piece. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and they both, they'll both turn out to be true. Yeah. I mean, in, in that sense, I think it's a very city-like in terms of curating more than a hundred architects. They have their own agenda, they have their own egos. And you have your own agendas. We have our own agendas. So how can we work together so that they, it, it tells a coherent story while each individual architect could tell it their own story too? What would you think about uh, Los Angeles design biennial? Do you think that the city could uh, benefit from something like that? I think LA could benefit from, an, uh, maybe not just an architectural biennial, but maybe a design biennial. So it's not just one a discipline of architecture, but architecture and design and film. Uh, I, I feel architecture plays a, has a different um, presence in the public conscience than a city like Chicago. LA mm-hmm. is much more sparse, you know, a lot of places mm-hmm. I mean, this is my first time here, you know, in this complex, for example, you know, so it's not something like buildings, as we, at least the traditional medium of architecture, is not as strong in the public consciousness than other media. So I think it would be beneficial to have a design conference, a design biennial, as opposed to just an architecture one. Yeah, I mean, I think... Maybe it's slowly changing, but some of the most significant and notable works of architecture in LA are residential buildings. They're private buildings. You know, there's a sort of hidden way that architecture has had a strong impact in the city, and so I think I think that's very different than Chicago. I mean, I think it's 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 a big city, but it's got a centralized um, you know maybe moving around it, the centrality of the downtown, um, the way you know I think. Architecture tourism is a, is, a, is a deal in Chicago. I mean, people come there to see architecture. I don't think that happens at the same level of intensity as it does in LA. And you know, I think there's been great shows uh, historically about architecture and the institutions in Los Angeles, but I don't think they've maybe had the impact that um, that they should have, frankly. And so. Perhaps you know conferences like this will continue to raise the profile and the, the discourse about design in the city. When I when I first came to LA, I mean downtown LA were kind of second third rate skyscrapers. You know, the architecture is really in the private realm. A lot of the buildings, the houses that you cannot see, mm-hmm. and not until maybe mid eighties to mid nineties that more prominent architects were doing public buildings. Grand Avenue, you know, the cathedral, uh, Henry Cobb doing the library tower. Um, so that was one moment where it was in public buildings, you see quality of architecture being being lifted. But now when I drive to downtown, I think we're going back to these like new second and third race skyscrapers. I think it's kind of an important time to, to think about the new downtown and what the, what's the quality of architecture that's being constructed. 
Definitely. Well, before we run out of time, I'd like to start talking a little bit about your work and your buildings. Maybe we could start with the Hill House, which is a, a house that you designed it's in Beverly Hills? Uh, Santa Monica. Santa Monica, on the iconic L.A. Hill site. How did you negotiate that type of, you know, iconic hillside location and come up with the very unique form of the house? I know that there's images of the house that are on rotation, so you'll probably get a glimpse of it. I thought the, the design process of the Hill House happened very naturally. The, the piece of land was the last uh, so-called virgin uh, unbuilt lot that was on Chautauqua, the street that's located. Mm-hmm. And like many hillside lots in L.A., it used to belong to another lot that was subdivided. And uh, when we designed the Hill House, it was, not, it was a few years after they imposed the hillside ordinance to try to uh, make it more difficult to build on hillsides, in many ways to preserve the hillside and discourage overbuilding on hillsides such as Hollywood Hills. So uh, there were other developers or architects that tried to build a house on that lot, which is a small lot, smaller than 5,000 square feet, that at the end didn't make a lot of economical sense. So for us, rather than fighting the hillside ordinance, we try to use it as a design opportunity and try to basically maximize the house based on the restrictions, the height, the volume, and at the same time try to minimize the footprint, which is uh, oftentimes the caissons go as deep as the height of the house itself, like a tree. You know? So by minimizing the footprint, we basically manage to save a lot of costs that would be put into reinforcing the hillside or, or uh, building the foundation of the house, and then at the same time maximizing the amount of backyard area. You know, so I think the Hills, Hill House came very much from a response to the, the contemporary challenges of building on the hillside. Mm. And I would also add, I think for us, uh, Raina Banham's uh, Four Ecologies of Los Angeles is a very important book. And even though it's uh, more than 40 years old and almost 50 years old, and Los Angeles has changed socially and politically, of course, uh, we feel many of the aspects, at least the physiognomy of the sites of these ecologies, are still very present. You know, so in many ways, when we build like the Hill House, or we think about the foothills, when we built the Vault House in Oxnard, we thought about the the beach land ecology. When we build a on the plains, we think about the plains. You know, so I I think uh, Banham's four ecologies are still very present for us when we think about Los Angeles. I remember uh, seeing a collage that you made of the Hill House with Julia Shulman's iconic uh, cantilevered, uh, what's the name of the house? The Stall House. Um, and it, when, I, when I saw that, it made, me, it made me think, it made me perceive your architecture as kind of a, a, a layered system with a function and a frame inside and then kind of an, a different, differently... Uh, treated exterior treatment that almost referenced uh, clothing, fashion. And I know that you both have, have worked with fashion designers as collaborators and clients. And I don't know if I was overthinking it or has, is there ever any reference to, to uh, clothing and draping in, in the way that you um, form your, your architecture? I don't know that we would speak so kind of literally in that, in that framework, but for sure, I mean, I appreciate your perception that the, I think in a lot of our work, especially the house projects, there is a, a kind of strong tension between the kind of sensibility of the exterior of the building and the kind of volumetric fluidity often of the interior. I think in a lot of our projects and the Hill House and the Vault House are good examples where 
you know, there's a certain, perhaps it's because of zoning restrictions or other parameters, there's a certain muteness in a way about the exterior. There's a certain way it sort of fits into the fabric of the neighborhood, um, at least on the street side, that is perhaps an opportunistic way to maximize volume or, you know, there's different reasons for it. But I think we, we've always found um, through our, you know, development of structures in our buildings and the kind of sensibility of the fabric and context around us, that that tension between the interior and the exterior is a kind of potent place of research. And for sure in the Hill House, there is a kind of stronger tension between those things than maybe some of the other projects. But I think someone like Adolf Loos is someone which is, a, is, a, is an architect that we admire and have thought a lot about that concern and interest in his work, um, perhaps more than through fashion. Although he was interested in fashion and clothing. But. Well, there's a lot more about your work that I would like to talk about, but I know we're running out of time. So I just want to uh, finish off with a discussion about academia. Uh, Mark, you were recently named the chair of the Department of Architecture at Harvard's GSD. What does this new position mean to you? Well, you know, I have not assumed that position. <laughs> we're two more, two more weeks than now. Two more weeks, okay. <laughs> but uh, it's, I think it's a very challenging time, interesting and challenging time in academia. You know, I think one of the reasons I took on this position uh, is because I feel that, uh, you know, there's a new generation that's coming. You know, a lot of the old generation that have established what academia is now, you know, has been, it's in a different place now. And there's a lot of younger people that's into, going into academia. And I feel a very uh, urgent need to tie what we're doing in academia with with the professional world. Mm. You know, I think I feel there's a certain autonomy that happened in the last 20 years that the academic world and the professional world has been further and further apart. Mm -hmm. So it became so autonomous that teachers are teaching students to become teachers again, mm -hmm. you know. And then the discourse that's being happening in academia, no matter how important it is from an art historical or architectural history angle, uh, have uh, a less impact on the built environment. Mm -hmm. And I think bridging this tie is very important. So this is one of the reasons I yeah. wanted to take on this challenge. I think a lot of architects would uh, very much agree with that, that goal. Um, but speaking of changes beyond just practice, our world is going through so yeah. much cultural shift and, and, and technological uh, changes. How do you feel the architectural education can um, help adapt the new architects who are studying now that will be practicing in you know 10, 20 years. Well, I feel. I mean, if I I'm a student of history, so I'm very interested in history, uh, not just of architecture, but also of epistemology, of ideas and thinking. And, and, uh, and certainly, when I look back, there are moments when architecture has been overestimated, mm -hmm. and there are moments when architecture has been underestimated. So for me, is to you know, it's very simplistic terms, but. I have to think about what happened in the last 20 years and make certain assertions about maybe, for example, digital architecture, digital-aided design, computer-aided design was very important 20 years ago when it came about. And But I think we could also say maybe there's certain people that were over-optimistic about that this will completely change everything. It did change a lot of things, but it didn't change everything. Mm -hmm. And I, having, I think having that sense of measured approach and understanding what are the limitations as well as the potentials of architecture mm -hmm. is important to deal with a new world. Because mm -hmm. I think it's futile to say that just give me whatever your problem is and architecture is the answer. Because architecture is not always the answer. There's some other disciplines that can answer better. You know, and understanding the limitations of architecture actually empowers architecture to really address those things. Well said. 
Well, thank you both so much thank for you. talking to me and sharing your story. Thank you. Thanks so much to Sharon and Mark for sitting down to discuss their work and their story. I'd also like to thank Haley Zaki and the rest of the team at Secret Agent PR for recording this session and for the awesome job they did with this year's LA Design Festival. They also have a podcast. It's called Design Etc., and it can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this podcast, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. You can also send us an email to connect at arconnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time.